4: Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. The sun has come back out as the Tory party leadership contest gets down to the wire. Yes, finally, after two more votes today, yeah, that's right, two more, uh, we will know who the party members will finally choose as the next Prime Minister of this country. After all, the hype around Rory Stewart. He came last in the ballot yesterday, and now we assume Sajid Javid and Michael Gove will be the next to hit the road. We'll bring you the first set of results just as they come in around about one o'clock, and then there's going to be more later on. So by the end of the day, it'll be Boris Johnson plus one other whoever ends up battling it out with Boris though it looks like the BBC might be the big losers as there's a threat that they might now be boycotted for any future debates and any future interviews after the fiasco of this week's big TV set piece. And who can blame them? 0344 499 1000. Coming up first today though, we're talking cyclists after a pedestrian one damages uh, from a collision which left her unconscious. Surely it's time now to bring in proper regulations for cyclists on our roads and for registration and insurance as well. I've already debated a cycling fanatic on TV this morning, but now we want to hear from you, okay? 0344 499 Also, coming up, we will bring you the latest from the Straits of Hormuz, where a US military drone has been shot down by the Iranians in international airspace. What will Donald Trump do by way of retaliation? Uh, we shall let you know as soon as we know. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of
3: Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
4: Now, those of you who follow me on Twitter will know that uh, I appeared on the Good Morning Britain this morning. Uh, where I was debating with a person who was very much on the side of cyclists, a man that doesn't own a car, a man that thinks cycling is the way forward, a man that thinks that the environment would be an awful lot better off, we'd all be a lot better off, basically, if there weren't any cars in the world. Now, uh, you can say what you like about the car business, you can say what you like about the cycling business. My problem about all of this is that we are being forced to coexist in a world where coexistence is not really the way forward. Yes, of course, people should be allowed to ride bicycles on the streets of London and every other street around the place, but surely what we ought to do is work out a better means of holding them to account if something goes wrong and, of course, of making sure that regulations, insurance and all sorts of other safeguards apply as well to uh, people who ride bicycles as people who drive cars. Nobody's asking for them to have extra powers. Nobody's asking people on bikes that they have to somehow be force-fed some law that nobody else is actually going to find applies to them. What they need to do is be in the same boat as people who drive cars. And at the moment, that is simply not the case. Let's talk to Nick Lloyd, who's head of road safety at ROSPA. Uh, Nick, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Yes, good morning, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. This story that has kind of got everybody going uh, refers to an incident that happened where a woman was walking out into the middle of the road while watching her mobile phone, while reading something on her mobile phone, didn't see a cyclist coming. The cyclist runs into her. They both get knocked out as a result of the collision. She's now won damages from him on the grounds that he should have taken better care to try and avoid her. Now, first of all, let me ask you about this particular situation because this could be a kind of open the floodgates uh, scenario, couldn't it?
3: Yes, yeah, I think it demonstrates actually that whether you're an, a pedestrian, a cyclist or driving a, a vehicle, you have to take a responsibility for your own safety and equally the safety of others.
4: Yes, absolutely right. Which is where I kind of take issue with the cycling fraternity because, while yes, it's right to say that probably an awful lot more cyclists than not actually abide by the rules and stop at red lights and do drive their bicycles carefully. There's quite a few, however, who do not do that and they don't seem to be held very much account uh, for it.
3: Well, there are laws out there... um... Not a lot of people, for example, can reel them off, which is understandable, but there are rules out there uh, and laws uh, which hold cyclists to account. So, for example, there is a offence of dangerous cycling, which is a £2,500 fine, uh, careless cycling, £1,000 fine, the government... um, also did a consultation in the autumn of last year following the tragic death of uh, Kim Briggs, which some of your listeners probably can remember, um, which looked at um, the offence of whether cyclists should be charged uh, with causing death by careless uh, or inconsiderate cycling, which is something that we supported at Rosper.
4: Yeah, but there's very few convictions of those kinds of offences, and you might say to me that's because there's not that many people committing um, offences of that type. However... The problem for me with an awful lot of what goes on for the two-wheeled fraternity is that you don't know who's cycling on a particular bicycle. You don't have any record of who uh, or what their registration is, whether they've got insurance. You don't have any of that. And I know that there are some quite responsible cyclists who tell me that they do have insurance, but there's no re- legal requirement for it.
3: That's quite right. Um, we at Rossper would recommend that cyclists do have... 30- party insurance it protects them from the instances of uh, as per your story where if you are found um guilty of of doing something wrong and and you're obviously um sued uh, and held liable that will cover you for it um uh, so we do recommend that but it, as you quite rightly say mike it isn't compulsory yeah
4: and why is it not compulsory because it's obviously compulsory if you have a car and you cannot drive a car if you're not insured that is against the law why should bicycles be any different
3: I guess it's historical. Um, it's not something that, to be perfectly honest, I'm. I'm not an expert in in sort of why it is the case. As I say, it's probably historical. I think it's probably a sledgehammer to, to to, to crack a very small nut. I think it's 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 out of proportion. I mean, what we should be talking about is actually not having not having crashes in the first place so we have better segregation where cyclists and pedestrians are, are kept apart wherever possible um, uh, and, and generally through better education enforcement and so on. So people just do behave properly.
4: And that is one of the problems, isn't it? Because a lot of, um, of cyclists have picked upon this particular case that we were talking about this morning um, because they say, surely the cyclist is not to blame if somebody walks out in front of them uh, who's actually reading from a message on a mobile phone. Now, you might make that argument, but the judge said in the case that basically, at all, all times, cyclists like car drivers must be aware of their
3: surroundings and they must be able to avoid these kinds of collisions. That, the judge is correct in what he says. Equally, it's a, if you take that logic a little bit further, and I'm, I'm not necessarily... Well, in fact, I'm not criticising the judge, but but it's interesting if you actually think about the logic in that so you're cycling along um, a road somewhere in London there's a, there's a vehicle on your left at a junction waiting to turn right you've reduced your speed, you've moved out a little bit, giving yourself a bit of extra space, you're looking, trying to make contact with the driver, all of a sudden he pulls out because he doesn't see you mm. and collides with you, does that actually mean that the cyclist has a some responsibility as well because it's the same logic, so I think it's we have to sort of ask the question, everybody, well, most crashes will have a proportion of blame, but it's very difficult to actually say, you know in this particular instance that my my analogy, the cyclists could have done a lot about it.
4: Well, exactly. I mean, accidents are called accidents because they happen by accident, and that is the point. But obviously, you have to take due care and attention about everything you do, particularly around the roads. And you made that point earlier about, you know, sort of making it better as an environment, both for cyclists and for car drivers, and lorry drivers and van drivers and everybody else who uses the streets. Because my argument would be that there needs to be some form of better delineation as to who has the right of way, where there are perhaps maybe streets where only cyclists can go. I mean, well, how do you, how would you feel about that?
3: I'd 100% agree with it. That is our aspiration. Um... We 100% support um, Mayor of London's um, vision, which is Vision Zero, and they've set targets where, uh, by certain um, certain times, um, 20 years time, for example, I can't remember the exact date, where there will aspiration nobody will be killed on London's roads. And the big thing about that is about having segregation, because with the best will in the world, where you've got narrow roads, pedestrians and cyclists and cars all trying to share space. It, doesn't work we do need to have right. better segregation where people are protected uh, from one another
4: well that's the thing i mean i was debating this morning with a guy called donica mccarthy right who is one of those kind of extinction rebellion sort of uh, sympathizers shall we say who doesn't think the cars belong in cities that's a different argument for another time but let's talk about the fact that it's cyclists who are really the ones who are most in danger and i'm always very surprised that some of them are those who then say, well, we don't want more registration, we don't want to have to have insurance. He even said he didn't want to wear a helmet on the grounds that he said there was uh, some form of um, data which suggested that if you're wearing a helmet and riding a bicycle, you're more likely to be in an accident because drivers drive closer to you, which sounded mad to me.
3: Yeah, and I think the whole, uh, th- I suppose, the thrust of what we at Rosper uh, is we pride ourselves to say we're an, a, an event, evidence-based charity. Yeah. So if we're going to change the law or we're going to put something else in place, we want to see evidence that it's actually going to work. It's it's going to make, the A, the road safer, B, can actually, can the police police it? Well, exactly Um, right. And how's it going to work? Because what we don't want to do is just create another bureaucratic nightmare, which actually makes a lot of people unhappy, and it has no positive safety benefit. So I'd like to sort of see evidence to say, you know, if cyclists were insured, if they had number plates, if they wore helmets, etc., etc. It's actually practical doable and it's going to have a safety benefit and at the moment i don't think it no it is
4: and there is a very great kind of disparity as well between the way that different people ride bikes because we've now got um you know a variety of opportunities to, to hire bikes for the day some people who ride those bikes maybe don't actually know how to ride the bike they know what the rules of the road are sometimes i've seen people on those late at night perhaps going home from the pub perhaps not uh, uh, entirely in a fit state to control any kind of vehicle I went out this morning uh, to West London. and On my way, I counted 12 uh, cyclists, not only one of which was actually stopped at a red light. Others were going through red lights. Others were riding on the pavement. Others were, um, you know, basically not using the cycle lane and, and cycling on the road. You know, there doesn't seem to be anybody kind of, you know, policing it, if you like.
3: Road policing numbers have dropped drastically since 2010. Again, it's something we at Rosper have been campaigning for, for, well since since it became apparent that since the, the dawn n- of time well since it's become apparent that the number of actual traffic police on the roads across the country uh, i think london is slightly better but nevertheless it is important that you have uh, active roads policing who can actually stop fine issue fixed penalties etc etc for all road- motorists whether they are well you know, drivers or cyclists who actually convene, uh, contravene rules of the Highway Code.
4: Right. But that is the problem because, you know, you say we've already got laws that protect people from dangerous cycling. But more often than not, and I'm getting loads and loads of tweets here from people saying, you know, I've nearly been run over three times on a pedestrian crossing where the, uh, the bicycle uh, uh, rider doesn't stop. People have not seen a, a cyclist coming through a red light. People have not seen a cyclist, you know, going the wrong way up a one-way street. You know, all of these things, generally speaking, because they don't have any kind of registration on the vehicle or on them, there's no way of knowing who that person is. And if they just keep going, you're never going to catch them.
3: There is a, yeah, truth in what you say. Um, Absolutely there is. There is truth in what you say. Um, However, I would say we need to educate cyclists you know and, and the vast majority i'm a cyclist i try and you know obey the rules of, of the road as try. i would, as i well you know nobody's perfect but i we i make my uh, level best to, to ensure that i cycle in the same way that i would drive with care and well, consideration which,
4: well, which cyclists don't know what the rules are i mean why would we need to educate them surely they know what the rules are if a red light turns red you stop
3: uh, that, that's what I mean by education. We need to, you know, to sort of make sure that that they're aware of, if you like... Well, you're telling
4: me that they're not aware that they're supposed to stop at a red light?
3: They are aware of it, but they need to be educated that they need to stop. Right, so they're willfully breaking the law, in other words. If they cycle
4: through on so red, what, yes. So what's wrong with them having some form of registration either on the bike itself or that they have to wear some kind of vest, a uh, high vis vest with a number on it, so that when they do something like that, they can get captured by a camera?
3: Well, that's the answer I gave before, Mike, which was, um, is it practical, is it manageable, will it have a safety benefit?
4: Well, it will, surely, if you're stopping people from going through red lights, if they think they're going to get punished. I think part of the problem here is that there is no ob- observable punishment if you if you break the highway code when you're
3: recycling around wherever you are. But if if you've got a registration plate on your bike and there's nobody there, we talked about roads policing numbers of, if it's nobody there enforcing, what's the point of having...
4: Well, you have cameras. I mean, there are more cameras in this in this country than anywhere else in the entire world, right? Most people get a speeding ticket, get a speeding ticket through the post because they've been snapped by a camera, not because they've been pulled over by a police officer. So if you have... And in most parts of London now, you have red lights which are triggered. If you go through them in a car, a camera takes a picture of your car and then you get a bill
3: i come back to my argument again, sledgehammer to crack a nut. I don't think it's, uh, it's something that uh, we at Rossport would support, compulsory registration of number plates and so on for bikes.
4: So um, what would you suggest
3: then? It comes down to, again, um, correct roads, policing, good education.
4: Education, all right. Well, how would you manage the education then?
3: Uh, one of the things, for example, was Avon and Somerset Police. They put in a, a um, course, a bit like a driver improvement course for cyclists, mm-hmm. um, and I'd th- like to see that. Um, was it compulsory? It was an option to prosecution, I exactly the same premises. Right, as... So
4: you have to catch them first, though.
3: Exactly, yeah. So, so there is a, a, a thirst for that, there is an
4: ability to do that, but then once you've caught them, you need to teach them not to do it again. Yeah, okay. which is which is a course. So that's not a sledgehammer crack a nut, is it?
3: Um, No, I think that those courses are great and I'd like to see them um, spread across the country. Again, my point about education, you know, it's, it's much better to educate people than simply to find them, which is the whole premise of, for example, driver diversion courses.
4: Yeah, no, I'm not worried about finding them. I'm talking about punishment. You can come up with any number of different kinds of punishment. But, Nick, thanks very much indeed. Nick Lloyd, head of road safety, uh, ROSPA. Uh, He doesn't think it's a good idea uh, to register bicycles. He doesn't think it's necessary. He thinks it's a sledgehammer to crack a nut. Well, I don't think it's a sledgehammer to crack a nut. I think it is absolutely necessary. Nick says, So is this guy saying that it's okay for cyclists to break the law because police numbers have fallen? People with views like this are the problem, not the solution. Well, I think you've got in a nutshell there, if you'll pardon the continuation of the nut analogy, what is wrong with the people of this country who make the rules in this country, and they say, well, why would we want to put some more rules in because people don't actually break the rules that often? Well, that's hardly a reason not to make them punished, surely, is it? 0344 499 1000. We'll take your calls next.
3: The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
4: Now, the amount of money spent uh, by the Department for International Development has fallen from 89% to 72% over the last three years, apparently. Uh, But other departments uh, which spend money on foreign aid as well uh, include the Foreign Office, the Home Office, the Business uh, and the Health and Education Departments, and in some cases... Their monies have trebled. Let's talk to Bob Seeley uh, to find out whether or not uh, this is value for money and what he thinks of it all. Bob, a very good morning to you. Welcome.
2: Hi, i Mike. Good morning to Thanks you. Thanks
4: very much for joining us. Um My pleasure. I mean, I suppose when they say things like this, the National Audit Office, there's the, the devil is in the detail because for most ordinary lay people like myself, when you see yeah. some office like this saying, well, we don't know if it's value for money, that normally means to me that it's not, but I could be wrong.
2: Um, I suspect you're probably right there, but we genuinely we don't know because right. it's not proven. I did a, a Global Britain study um, back in February of this year, and one of the things that we discovered is that we probably spend quite a bit more than 0.7 on, on aid right. because it slightly depends on how it's defined. And as you say yourself, the Foreign Office spends a lot of money on aid. Bayes spends $575 million on overseas projects. Mm. Um, I didn't even know about the health service doing – the health department doing that. Um, But a lot of government departments seem to be getting in onto the Overseas Aid Act. Uh, And you have got to question then the value for money, considering we're spending probably more than 0.7% anyway. So, for example, the Conflict Stability and Security Fund – Spent 1.182 billion in 2017-2018, mm. but half of that, 627 million, was not considered to meet the legal our legal criterion for overseas um, overseas aid, and we apply. Uh, we don't apply our own definition of what is aid. We have to apply other people's definition. And actually, again, that doesn't really work for us, I don't think.
4: No. So. The trouble is, I suppose, it's, a, it's an easy target, this isn't it, the foreign aid budget, because it's one of the things that always gets dredged up at election time or whenever there's a sort of, a, uh, shall we say, somebody wanting to yeah, make a point the, about what what, the, what it is that we're doing with our money. Well,
2: there's there's lots of really cheap politics around both sides. Of yes. This. And one of the problems I find is that I'm I'm very happy to keep the 0.7, but the uh, the 0.7 currently means that we spend more on overseas aid than we do on policing. Mm. And for a lot of people in Britain, that is very obviously concerning. And actually, we need to do better at not only explaining it, but I would redefine it. Mm. So that I think if you said to the average Brit, look, we'll keep the 0.7, but we will include peacekeeping operations, which is about 400 million a year, so effectively give the MOD a bit of an uplift, and we will include the BBC World Service, and we will include bits of international trade, especially when they're encouraging countries to green their economies, then I think many of your listeners would say, okay, that's more acceptable. Mm. But having a, mo- having a system at the moment where we get told what the definition of aid is, where we're actually spending more than 0.7, it's very difficult. The problem is when people like me, who are very moderate in this, it's not like we're saying, oh, let's not spend any money on overseas aid. When people like me are saying, well, let's adjust our definitions, um, because we already spend much more generously, but let's just have more credibility, you get the whole aid industry, some of my conservative colleagues, but almost all Labour and Lib Dem jumping up, virtue signalling and denouncing you So you ha- and, and so unfortunately that reduces public debate that either this is a great shibboleth that must mm. never be questioned or you go sort of hard over on the sort of fringes of UKIP saying no overseas aid at all. You c- it's very difficult to have a sensible conversation. About it
4: really it. is and as you say the best way out of those kinds of situations is to provide the most facts that you can. I mean is there anywhere yeah. for example that we can go and look exactly where the money is going?
2: Uh, uh, the simple answer is no, because when we wrote our Global Britain study, I wrote it with a guy called James Rogers from the Henry Jackson Society. And, you know, it's a chunky report. It was about 45 mm. pages. Right. We could not find a comprehensive definition of how aid was spent. And we put down written questions, we put down oral questions, I talked to ministers, I talked to civil servants. Nobody actually knows. And one of the, the recommendations that we, we made is that Britain needs an overseas spending audit, because we need to find out how we're spending this money to not... And again, you say this to the aid lobby, and they say, "Oh, you mustn't do that." Mm. And you you're, you are left thinking, "Okay, so what are you scared of exactly?" Yes, quite. If this ending if this if this spending is so good, why does nobody want to do an overseas spending audit to? make sure that our spending is good.
4: Mm, that is the trouble, isn't it? Because the one that comes up an awful lot when I'm talking to people on the phone here on the radio yeah. is India, yeah. where, you know, we, we hear from, uh, from, from people yeah. over there, look, they've got their own space programme, uh, they're one of the yeah. big emerging economies of the world, Absolutely. Uh, they've got massive uh, potential for trade. In fact, I think Tony Blair says they're going to be one of the most important countries in the future uh, of all time because of the numbers yeah. of people, surely, that are just yeah. there. Um, why are we giving them aid?
2: There is a moral case for saying – I mean, again, one of the recommendations we said, if a country has a space program, we should not be spending aid. And the aid may be – for the start, if if individuals want to give money to individual charities to do good work with Mm. poor people in India, absolutely. I mean, nobody is objecting to that, but that's private choice. But the state giving money to countries with space programs – Those countries have the money to make those choices themselves on how they spend. And therefore, we shouldn't be stepping in to effectively subsidize advanced defense programs, advanced space programs, um, because frankly, we could spend that money better either here or elsewhere. The issue is you're getting into when when you talk to, again, your listeners and you say, well, how much of the aid budget is spent on life saving, saving lives of of starving kids in Africa? Most people will say, well, surely it must be 50%. Actually, it's about 15%. Is it? And that's and, probably and, yeah, and something that people,
4: and if you ask people what yeah. proportion it should be, yeah. they would probably and, also differ from that.
2: Yeah, and again, it's one of the secrets that the, the aid industry don't want to tell you. Again, another 16% or so, if I understand these figures correctly, and it is difficult to find out, another 16% is spent on really worthwhile important stuff, Mm. you know, clean water, malaria campaigns, again, really important. And I think, if anything, we need to be spending more on that very moral stuff that Brits expect us to be doing. But a lot of the governance programs that we spend money on, um, have no basis, there's no evidence that they work. And so the question is then, if you're doing a big governance programme and you've spent £100 million in West Africa or Asia, and then the Chinese government comes along and bribes some minister, mm. actually, I'm uh, sorry, that's a bit crude, but you know, to put it bluntly. I wasn't going to um, pick you up on it. <laughs> well, uh, thank you. Um, what's the point of that governance programme? Are we not better spending that money maybe on a reinvigorated BBC World Service TV and radio, with the mandate to go and become the global broadcaster of integrity and raise standards through showing people what are the best media? Yeah. Cam- uh, the this best may media not be. World this may like. not
4: be the best week to do that. However, of course,
2: no. I mean, look, the BBC domestic, I do think, has a bit of an agenda sometimes, and I think they embarrass themselves hugely, shamefully over the the um, the debate they have yes. because. Um, frankly, a farce. But the BBC World Service, um, uh, BBC World Service, TV and radio is an absolute force for good in the world, and I'm a massive fan of it. Yes, I agree with that. Typically, in our British way, we underfund something. It is extraordinary that the better an institution is in this country, and I'm thinking the BBC World Service Mm. and the armed forces, the less we spend to fund them properly. These are great institutions and actually we should be funding them much better. That's why, to get credit for the aid budget or credibility for our aid budget, I want money, different money, to go towards more towards peacekeeping. You can fund about 15% of peacekeeping operations under these slightly ridiculous rules we have to obey. Well, I want to do it 100%. And what about the many, other other yeah.
4: countries' roles in, in this kind of fundraising and this kind of projected well, aid? Because do other countries, and particularly does the European Union do it as well?
2: Well, I mean, this is the thing. It's, it's as if we sort of think we're going to be terribly mean if we redefine the aid budget to include BBC World Service and, mm. and, and, and the peacekeeping and, you know, and some of the DIT work. Actually, if you look at Germany and France, all these places spend between 2 and 3% of, the, of their GDP, half, half of what we do. Yeah. And so to think that we can't redefine how we spend aid... I want to stick to the zero point seven, but i 'd have zero point four or zero point five according to the OECD rules that we have to obey and then have flexibility on how we spend the other stuff in order to make sure it remains credible and respectable frankly to folks like your listeners mm. who accept that we need to do good work but who want it more integrated um, and frankly want it a little bit more flexible and do want it tied into our national interest no sure. we are not we are not as as as, um, as selfish or as narrow-minded as most other countries when it comes to aid, and our aid is generally pretty unconnected to our natural, national interest, I would argue it probably needs to be a little bit more so, mm. and we shouldn't be ashamed of having a national interest because we should be proud of it.
4: And if the National Audit Office can't work out whether it is indeed value for money, do we need to yeah. m- change the way that it is judged in that sense so that you can have some kind of a scale and say, well, look, we gave X uh, millions or billions to India, yeah. this is what happened yeah. in return?
2: Absolutely, Mike. And another thing, again, we, we suggested in our, in our uh, Henry Jackson Society Global Britain study, is that if we can't guarantee that the aid is working, we shouldn't be spending. Right. So, for example, I had a friend uh, quite a few years ago who, now, who reported, who reported Diffit to the Serious Fraud Office because she saw tens of millions of pounds just being siphoned off, mm. um, which was going into a, a certain country. I'll be careful what I say about yeah. this. And at the time it was really depressing. The only thing Difford seemed to care about was how to protect their reputation.
4: Right, that is a shame. Now I've got this great uh, tweet which... A, well, it's
2: actually shocking. Yeah. It, it was absolutely shocking. Yeah.
4: yeah, but nothing was done about it, presumably. Um, Simon has, um, has, uh, has, yeah. has, has gone slightly off topic here. He says this. Mike, can you ask Bob Seeley uh, if we can get some of that international aid money uh, being put towards a tunnel to the Isle of Wight we're being ripped off by ferry companies to get to the mainland?
2: Yes. Um, My answer is very simple. If we can get three billion... If anyone is interested in in any bit of government is interested in giving us $3 billion to build a fixed link to the Isle of Wight, we will have a conversation about that. We have a, a, a small campaign on the island about a fixed link. I uh, spend most of the time slightly abusing me on social media, <laughs> and I'm afraid my attitude is if, if there was a serious possibility of getting money for a fixed link, we should have that discussion. But the reality is there isn't, and I need to spend my time delivering for people on a daily basis, getting the island recognized as an island, which I did earlier this year for the first time in our history, believe it or not. Really? The Isle of Wight now is a according to local government, officially in Ireland. Oh, good. It uh, wasn't before. Okay. Wasn't I, did before. No, I had and, no idea. Uh, no, no, we've got £30 million to fix Ride Railway Pier to make sure we've got that connection to the end of the, to the pier. We're expecting some good news on some other big funding projects in the next couple of months. I need to do the bread-and-butter stuff. Rather than just wave a placard saying build a bridge.
4: No, of course. And we know that you do do that. Let me just say a brief
2: answer to that one.
4: Let me ask you finally about Boris Johnson, um, somebody who I think you've you've wanted to emerge as the winner in this race. Um, How do you think he's done? How do you think um, his campaign has gone? And will it get a bit nastier before he finally sort of gets into Downing Street, which we assume he will?
2: Well, let's let's see. I mean, I, I supported Michael Gohm in the first round, and I've supported Boris since, and I like both of them very much. I like both of them in the final. I supported Boris for, my heart was always saying I should have supported Boris. My head slightly said Michael. Actually, mm. I thought Boris has fought a, I respect both very much, I thought Boris has fought a better campaign, and actually I agree with some of his policy positions more, especially, I think we've got to scrap HS2, uh, um, and we need to spend that money on regional infrastructure projects, whether it's in Cornwall or Devon or Humberside or the Isle of Wight, um, and we need to get we need to be spending that money on 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 connectivity not in sort of railways getting the cbi to birmingham london 20 minutes quicker but frankly getting super fast broadband to every home in britain so we can um you know modernize and and you know improve our quality of life and our economy etc right. so there are many things that so and i like boris's stance on a lot of things we need to deliver on brexit otherwise people are not going to listen to us on anything else and i want to continue serving the good people of the isle of wight Um, And to do that, I need to make sure that we deliver on Brexit, because that's how they voted, and that's what I want to deliver Mm. for them.
4: And I know that some people say that you don't want a coronation as such, but Jeremy Hunt apparently just told Sky News, we can do better than Boris Johnson as Prime Minister of this country. It's not terribly wise, is it?
2: Well, uh, I'm not interested in colleagues criticising each other, and actually I thought Rory's campaign was a bit um, not up to scratch on that score. Um, and I just want a positive contest because, frankly, I like and respect all the candidates. I think Sarge is a great bloke. You know, in, if we had a slightly different environment, Sarge may, may have emerged as, as the winner here. Jeremy Hunt is is a really thoughtful, intelligent person and a really safe pair of hands. Uh, Michael Gove has a fantastic and brilliant mind. And I, I want him up there, you know, in some leadership role in the party. Absolutely. Because we need to renew ourselves in office. And Boris is an awesome front man. And he's a very good delegator. And he won two elections in a Labour city of London and we need to realise the power Mm. of that.
4: Okay, Bob, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Bob Seeley there, uh, Conservative MP for the Isle of Wight, member of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Surprise, surprise, the National Audit Office says they can't tell uh, if all the foreign aid that we give out, £14 in total, uh, is worth uh, the money or whether, indeed, we get value for money. It's not that surprising, is it? 03444991000. I'm not against it. I don't want to do away with it. But I want to hear from you on this as to what we do to make it more accountable, because there must be a better way. We'll take your calls next.
0: you dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator
3: the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio
4: Pete says this uh, why did Bob Seedy not run for Prime Minister I agreed with everything he said and Rob says it was refreshing to hear Bob uh, the MP for the Isle of Wight, actually able to highlight improvements made for his constituents the visions they share and will be working on achieving I dream of such commitment from a a Tory safe seat officially a rotten borough Uh, go Bob well I mean uh, also very very candid as well on what he thinks about uh, the policy of the current Tory party and whether individuals should be attacking one another in the race to be the Prime Minister and I think he said some very sensible things let's talk to Rudy, uh, on the subject of foreign aid first. Rudy, very good morning to you.
2: Hi, Mike.
5: Um, What I was going to say was what people sort of overlook is that that £14
2: they send in foreign aid is borrowed money. So they're paying interest on that money. Right. So it's not even £14 it's more than that, and it's obviously accumulated interest. We cannot afford to pay that money, but just by the very fact that we're having to borrow the money to send it.
4: Yeah. So it's not actually our money to loan, but we're loaning it out anyway.
2: Yeah, it's like you
5: going to your bank and saying oh, you know, I want to take out a £50,000 loan so I can give it to a charity, but I haven't got the money to pay it back.
4: That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, that is the trouble. And I think there's no doubt that the system should be there for certain, um, you know, ways of paying for certain things, but it needs to be tightened up and it needs to be much better defined so that we all know, as individuals and members of of this country, citizens, where it's going.
5: Exactly, but they don't disclose... You see, the thing is, is why are we borrowing £14 giving it to countries like india mm. that don't need the money
2: and we're paying interest on it why are we not just borrowing seven billion yeah. and paying less interest
4: right or we'll get you them know. to pay the interest or something i mean we could come up with some exactly. better better plan surely no it's a good point rudy thanks very much indeed let's talk to chris uh, who is in burton upon trent wants to talk about cyclists hello chris hi mike how are you doing uh,
5: I'm good thanks, mate. I don't know what's wound you up today about cyclists, but I well, mean now, man, you've got a real thing against them.
4: Well, I've always had a thing against them. Did you not
5: know that? <laughs> <laughs> it's not just today. <laughs> the, the thing is, the thing is, if you're a cyclist, right, two th- I'm a motorbike rider and a car driver. One thing they teach you when you take your motorbike test is keep moving. That's what cyclists do. Yeah. Okay. Sometimes they will go through things. But if you're a cyclist, most car drivers still don't know about the rules, the, the amount of space they're supposed to give a cyclist. Yeah. If you take the proper rules, you're supposed to cross the white line to overtake a cyclist.
4: Yeah, but that's not practical in most situations in the city, ah, is it? Doesn't matter.
5: Yeah, but it doesn't matter, does it? Well, it does. You can't put if there's a lot. You're going on about people and the rules. The rules are the rules. The car driver can't decide when he changes the rules to suit him. No, I get but that. Saying, Listen, my, my main
4: argument, Chris, is not that cyclists are all bad and car drivers are all good. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is is that if we are to coexist in the same space, something needs to be done to change it because
5: we're not doing it very well. No, what, what should happen is every car driver should go and ride a bike for a little while and see how bad the car drivers are. It's like somebody said earlier on, cyclists should wear uh, fluorescent jackets and all I that. I think right? so, yeah. Okay. Yeah, but how many car accidents happen every day where people hit cars? Now, how big's a car? Six foot, 12 foot square? Are we going to paint all inflorescent? So the car drivers can't even see a car. But well, I don't it's not so much that. I but... think
4: the problem is, though, Chris, is that there's a great deal of intransigence going on here between those people in the cycling lobby who think that they should be able to do whatever they like. And I think there's a, there's a certain mindset there uh, which is dangerous to themselves. You know, they're the ones that are getting killed. They're the ones that get squashed by lorries and run over by cars and they die. I mean, te- technically speaking, if you have an incident in a car at five miles an hour with another car, you're not going to die. But you could kill a, a cyclist at that speed.
5: Well, you could, yeah. And I think from the cyclist's point of view, the cyclist knows that every time he goes out, every time we go out, we ride as a bunch or whatever we ride, it's self-preservation. That's what we have to look out for. And we have to make sure that we do that. And we make a decision if we go through that gap or we don't go through it, that self-preservation you say, look, I'm going to go there yeah. because it's safer than being here because that bloke ain't going No, to I get that. Me.
4: But why is it, for example, that, you know, you are on a motorcycle, you have got to pay uh, for your licence, you have got to pay yeah. uh, for your um, uh, your road tax, you have got to pay insurance, you've got to have a proper kind of setup in order to use the road. People on bikes don't have to, and I just don't understand why they don't want to, to begin with, uh, and why they come up what with all sorts think? of reasons why there's no point in well, wearing one helmets one is- or no point in wearing high-vis jackets. Why?
5: Right, one thing is we don't wear the road out. Our tyres are very small, so we don't wear the road out. Number two, it's very healthy. We want to get healthy people. We'd save a lot of money in the NHS if people got on their bike. Look at all the countries that embrace it. That's not the point, though. Lane, all that sort of that's not it's health.
4: about accountability surely Chris it's not about health it's about whether you well, are you accountable as a member of the of the of the country as a citizen of this country and if you are in a position uh, where you are riding a bicycle or any other kind of vehicle on the road everybody should be treated the same and at the moment that's not the case well no I don't agree with that
5: well the you don't think you think e- you're a special no, case no 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 not about that. no no so. bike is the most efficient forms of transport no it's, it's not it's, it is. It's the most efficient no. way of moving from A to most, B.
4: No, it's not. It's the most efficient way of moving from A to B, maybe in a city. It's not the most efficient way of moving from London to Glasgow.
5: If you... Right, is OK. It? Of course it is. Before oh, you right. Have so, so next most time I want to go to Glasgow, like, I should cycle most, there. Have you got okay, a un, Hang on. Most underdeveloped countries, the bike is the transport. Yeah, but the we're not an
4: underdeveloped country. We're a developed country and we have cars and we have
5: trains and we have planes. Yeah, great. Totally. You don't like that? No, I do like that. I, I use cars and trains every day for okay. things. I fly to places. Right. Yeah, you've also got to understand... You, you've taken the argument to a silly save then. If you were no, there. you're the you've one that's done that. You just told I me that a bike anything.
4: was the, by far away the best way of getting anywhere. Well, how do I get to New York on a bike?
5: No, I didn't. I said it's the most... Convi- it's the most... What's the uh, name I can't remember the word. You can't remember now. what you
4: said. I'm not no. surprised. You're very muddled up. <laughs> you probably had a couple of, uh, of accidents that may have <laughs> toppled your gyro.
5: Exactly, mate. Right. Yeah, exactly, mate. Right. Yeah. But no, it's the most efficient means of transport. That well, is... well, yeah, but that's
4: not true. It's only the most efficient means of transport if you're going a short distance. That's what I'm saying.
5: Yeah, but wearing a helmet, right, is down to the individual. That won't make any difference to car drivers and what happens to cycle. It's down to the individual. It's like if the individual... Yeah, but you're going to cost the
4: NHS more money if you fall off your bike, hit your head and end up yeah, having I mean, to be hooked up to a life support
5: machine. OK, so how many people are overweight with diabetes that cost the thing money?
4: Well, you can make that I mean, argument about anything. Why don't you just stop everybody from doing everything? Exactly. So why do you want to
5: have a go at
4: cyclists? I don't want to have a go at cyclists. I don't care if you don't want to wear a helmet. All I'm saying is, is that I want you to be responsible and I want you to be accountable so that if you hit somebody, we know who you are. It's as simple as that. Well, you know? Why would you, why would you be against that?
5: Why would you be against that? If you that? hit me in your car, you know who I am, because I'm next, I'm not getting
4: up. I'm not talking about me hitting you, I'm talking about you hitting a pedestrian and cycling off.
5: Most accidents I've ever had on my bike are through bad road maintenance. Right, Pothole, you still have, have them, up. though. Yeah, because the thing isn't... Requ- the, 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 the roads aren't the roads. Have, have you ever gone no. through a red light, Chris?
4: Have you ever cycled through a red light? No, You stop for I'll all red lights, do you? Yeah, exactly.
5: Yeah, Good.
4: But you respect the road. Yeah, but not every <laughs> cyclist is like you, Chris. Pardon? Not There's every not, cyclist is me. like you. I told you, I looked, I watched 12 cyclists this morning, just as a, just as an yeah. exercise, as I was going from East London to West London, and only one cyclist that I saw stopped at a red light. Everybody else now, went through... How many
5: bad road drives did you see, Mike? I didn't see any. Uh, because you weren't looking for them. No, I didn't see any. I bet you the multiple of bad road drivers was 10 times Well, I'll tell you, you what, they didn't
4: go through any red lights like the cyclists did. <laughs> they didn't go through any red lights. You're never going to win this, Chris. Just accept <laughs> the fact that you're not a special case. You should get with the programme and you should convince all your other biking you what, like, mates to cycle as, as per it, the law.
5: I listen to you every day and it was great to see you on GMTV. This is <laughs> the place today, but, yeah... I don't, yeah, yeah, it was good, mate. Yeah. Good. Come, well,
4: listen, I appreciate it. And thank you for listening and thank you for coming in uh, and giving me a different point of view. But the trouble is, Chris says that he obey, obeys the law. That's great. I'm very glad. Most people should obey the law, but they don't all. That is the problem.
3: A mid-morning dance
0: with the devil. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham.
3: On Talk Radio. It looks
5: like they've ordered a sequel.
3: Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing a sequel. We're back by popular demand. Come on, everybody, strike up the band. We're doing a sequel. That's what we do in Hollywood. And everybody knows that the sequel's never quite as good.
4: And this is quite an inspired little piece of music for what is about to happen, because what is about to happen uh, is that the fourth ballot for the Conservative leadership uh, will be getting underway very shortly. So what better uh, than to have Ross Kempsell come and join us? Ross, welcome back uh, to the show. You were on a little bit earlier on this morning. Um, this is probably... Um, The sort of penultimate ballot, I suppose, because we expect one to drop out here and maybe another one later
1: on. This is the one today, really, which sets up the question of who's going to come second. So there are two things to watch out for. The first is who uh, has got the numbers to come second. That's between Jeremy Hunt and Michael Gove. And the second is a remote outside chance that there is a big upset and Sajid Javid remains in now there's been speculation all morning that Sajid Javid is benefiting from tactical voting from Team Boris Johnson. Now just go through this possibility in your head. What if Sajid Javid were lent, for example, 40 votes by Mm. Boris Johnson, who's way ahead uh, on 143 and that was enough to knock out Boris Johnson's mortal enemy from the old days, Michael Gove. Could that be uh, one of the tactical formulations which is played here? The the risks of doing that are just so great Mm. and Team Johnson deny that they've got anything to do with it. The risks uh, are so great that it might not be a game that you want to play but there are a lot of MPs voting by proxy today as we discussed earlier right. the atmosphere in Westminster is actually very quiet not a lot of MPs around mm. a lot of them just have got this view now that it's so done and dusted this yeah. competition this stage it's really only about who comes second there'll right. be a bit more and activity over the second ballot this afternoon but you know we're not out of the woods because those are the kind of environment that can, that can give a big upset sure
4: and Bob Seeley was interesting today because he said that he wasn't keen when Jeremy Hunt came out and basically said that you know Britain can do better than having Boris Johnson Johnson as Prime Minister, he was very clear that he didn't think that was the way to go. He thought that Rory Stewart's campaign was a little bit too negative um, because the Tories, in the end, shouldn't be fighting amongst themselves at this point, which unfortunately is likely to be the case if it drags out too long, right? As you were saying.
1: Yeah, and look, all of the things that have been said by uh, the various uh, uh, supporters, MPs in this uh, very heated leadership contest are going to hang over into the government, aren't Mm. they? You don't just forget all of this stuff that's been said about you. They've been been fighting behind the scenes for weeks now. It's going to go on for another four weeks. So I I do think it will have a big impact on, you know, the way that Boris Johnson forms his government and what happens. And
4: the way that he emerges. Sajid Javid, of course, on the front of The Times this morning saying he wants to be the next Chancellor. Um, And also the current Chancellor, Chancellor uh, Philip Hammond saying that well you know uh, we should keep the second referendum as an option so I guess you would say that if Boris is going to get the job he's not going to keep Philip Hammond in that job.
1: I think Hammond is certainly out if Boris Johnson becomes Prime Minister. I think we can say that for sure. Uh, I think we're doubtful over the rest of the compilation of the uh, Cabinet and its makeup. It's It's going to be a a bitter fight amongst the top dogs to secure a seat at the Cabinet table. Boris Johnson has got a dilemma. He needs to decide fundamentally whether to create a government of unity to attempt to unify the Conservative Party. And remember that every candidate has been uh, using that rhetoric throughout this debate. There is a question, a broader question, sort of philosophical question about uh, unifying the Conservative Party whether that is a way to unify the country and do you want to be a Prime Minister who takes on that kind of mantle Mm. immediately Boris Johnson says that he does Uh, or does he get cagey and fear the risk of having uh, enemies inside the camp basically who are going to take advantage going to take briefings going to leak going to disrupt his government Mm. and may very well do the absolute ultimate threat which is at the time of the 31st of October when he's crucially trying to get a new Brexit deal through turn around and betray him.
4: Yes, well, of course, and everybody's watching what Rory Stewart's going to do next because um, we're just watching at the moment the uh, uh, the empty room where uh, the. Uh the twenty-two committee, nineteen twenty-two <laughs> committee, meet uh, as we were a couple of weeks ago, waiting for them to come out. Mark Francois just came out and pretended that he was taking something out of his pocket. I assume that's some kind of uh, political
1: joke. Yeah, that's an attempt at banter from Mark Francois, and it's uh, never it, a good idea, it, is it? Well, uh, you know, so, so, <laughs> uh, yeah, he's, uh, i don't know whether he's renowned for his uh, humor, um, but uh, the—we've seen a lot of the inside of Committee Room fourteen. Mm. Uh, we're seeing the wallpaper there again in the House of Commons, waiting for the returning officers of the nineteen. Twenty-two committee, Dame Cheryl Gillan and Charles. It Walker. reminds
4: me of the wallpaper inside an Indian restaurant. Does it not look a bit like that? <laughs> um,
1: well, actually, you know, the Palace of Westminster is falling down, and it's quite shabby inside. Yeah. Uh, it's not as it's not as grand as you might think. But there is, of course, the grand atmosphere, yes. and uh, the atmosphere in and in and around Parliament has been buzzing in the past few days. It has been uh, a case of Machiavellian whispering behind the scenes. We can see that MPs have been brought in. There, are, a few of them are in there to hear uh, the results of this ballot. I think you get a real sense of atmosphere on the announcement of the final ballot yes. this evening at 6pm and that's because that's when we know the final two names there is actually provision for a yet another ballot this evening between 7 and 9pm mm. just in case you're you're desperate for even more and that would be in the case of a tie so if there are a tie this right. evening on the final ballot it would go to another ballot so
4: to get from 3 to 2 Exa- exactly yeah. to get from 3 to it's 2 it's an extraordinary uh, thing to watch really because I know when you and I were doing this the last time it happened um, and there was quite a sort of um, a of banging of desks and, and quite a lot of of. cheering going on and it's—I mean—it's quite an historic moment, really, especially as we're now getting very close.
1: Well, it is. I mean, you know, this is officially the Conservative and Union Party, Unionist Party leadership election, mm. but the reality is is that this is the mechanism by which the United Kingdom is choosing its new prime minister, although albeit a small constituency of 313 mm. Conservative MPs and about 180,000 Tory members or so. So, uh, it is—it is the country uh, installing its next prime minister. And my goodness, what an tray that prime minister is going to have! Inherit many of the challenges that Theresa May has been unable to solve, but not just that. Uh, a whole new set of challenges which are likely to come along as well. Two massive questions, really, on the Prime Minister's desk. The first is Brexit, what to do about the deadline of the 31st of October. That's what a large amount of the fray has Mm. been in this Tory leadership election. And secondly, for the Conservatives, when are they going to go to the country and have a general election? Mm. When are they going to attempt to do that? Is Boris Johnson, if he becomes Prime Minister, going to attempt to see through a full term without going to the country? I mean, he won't be able to get very much done in the House of Commons if he does that. Uh, There's going to be weak support. It's always going to be a question mark over whether he's got the votes necessary, if the sort of sense of unity that there might be behind him now falls away very quickly, which is likely to do once you get into the reality of governing, Boris Johnson is not yet touching 50% of the parliamentary Conservative Party vote. He's on 143. That's 50. Sorry, that's 45.7%. If he gets up to uh, approaching 160, 170, he'll be on 50% of the vote.
4: Mm. Looks as though uh, thank you, something might be happening. If you're waiting for Matthew Wright, by the way, Matthew Wright will be along very, very shortly. Uh, we're just going to finish up here uh, with the Independent Republic of Mike Graham because the announcement of the fourth ballot result is coming up. Charles Walker
6: and I, as returning officers for the election of a leader for the Conservative and Unionist Party, can now declare the results of the fourth ballot. The total number of votes cast in today's ballot were 313. The total number of spoilt ballot papers were two. (laughs) 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 We've spoilt uh, spoilt a perfect record. Um, The total number of votes given to each candidate in alphabetical order were as follows. Michael Gove, 61. Jeremy Hunt, 59. Sajid Javid thirty four Boris Johnson one hundred and fifty seven. The following candidates are now eligible to continue on to the next ballot which will take place this afternoon at three thirty PM in committee room fourteen Michael Gove, Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson. Thank you very much indeed. So, uh,
4: Sajid Javid, as probably expected, um, uh, comes in
0: last and bites the dust. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
4: If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say.